Roderick on the Line is unabashedly sponsored by Igloo Software, a digital workplace that helps you work better with other people. Sign up for a free 30-day trial at igloosoftware.com slash findyourduck. Hello. Hey, John. Hi, Marilyn. How's it going? Well, it feels like the first time. Mm. Feels like the first mm. time. Mm. I think um, America's introduction to Thomas Dolby, they may not be aware it was four or four. Say what? Many people uh, were aware of Thomas Dolby from his, uh, what's it called, the uh, Golden Age of Wireless or whatever. Right, but great I'm album. Pretty sure, I, that's, I think that's the title. Um, I think he was the guy who played all the keyboards on Four or Four. On Four or Four? I'm going to have to check that. I think you should, because yeah. that's quite a claim. I would like to start collecting all of these in my own kind of personalized version of Turns Out, where I think it is it's actually... Like the first time. Well, that's from, uh, is that from, that's from, not from Head Games, like what's that from? you've never been before. Hmm. I, I'm, I'm very glad that you brought up Foreigner. Yes. <laughs> Truthfully. I would, I, would love, I would love to know. Because I, I, I have to tell you, there, again, this is going to be my second turns out of the day. I mm-hmm. honestly am not... I have a pretty good idea what you think of Foreigner 4, but yeah. I have to be honest with you. I think I could see you going either way hard on it. Right. Can I, can I guess? I'll write it on a card. I'm going to write it on a card. And then you, okay. we, do you mind? Okay, go ahead. Write it on a card, and okay. then I'll tell you what I think. Of I'm writing. I'm writing on the. This is first of all. This is going to be a real screwy day, as you know. Where this is. Yeah. There's a lot of things that are different about today. This night is different from all others. Because first of all, it's <laughs> That's true. Early afternoon. First of all, we've eaten the bitter herbs. <laughs> I can't get anything past you. I'm going to say John's foreigner for feeling. Mm-hmm. Feels like the first time. And I've written down what I think your answer will be, John. And as much as you're comfortable saying, what is your position on the 1981 album Foreigner 4? Urgent, 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 urgent. Emergency. Foreigner 4, I have a tremendous vulnerability. I have a soft, I have a soft spot in my head uh, where the, my skull did not form completely all the way. You've got a musical, allows, a musical fontanelle. That allows Foreigner 4... <laughs> in and it and and it's lodged there it's lodged there like a like a succubus uh and and i i can't say a bad thing about it because foreigner four came out in 1981 mm-hmm. which was right between it came out the summer of 81 right between seventh and eighth grade for me oh that's boy that's where a lot of stuff oh oh mm-hmm. my god Woo. right we right. need a name for that summer because that is a turning point. Se- seventh and eighth and eighth and ninth. Both of those summers were huge turning points, especially in music for me. Yeah. The summer between seventh and eighth grade, I think, is the summer between... When I started seventh grade, I was still, uh, let's be honest, a sixth grader. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's because I, was, I, I had the misfortune, I think, now looking back, the misfortune of being born in September. And uh, when... It came time to make that decision in whatever, 1973 or 2, 19, whatever that was. Came time to make the decision, do we put him in kindergarten when he's a four-year-old, or do we wait an extra year and put him in kindergarten when he's a five-year-old? I was a big kid, I was a precocious kid, and my folks were like, oh, he'll be fine. 
I was gonna I was gonna write it on a card. That was gonna be my guess that they went ahead and pushed you in. That's early, yeah. John. That is early. And so so I started I started kindergarten at four, and that Oof. means that I my whole life, you know, my best friend in high school, his birthday was the first week of December, and he was, I mean, basically a full year. He was ten months older than I was. Mm-hmm. There was a kid in my uh, the junior year. My uh, there was a kid who was a junior my senior year, and he and I had the exact same birthday, and. So I spent my whole life, you know, kind of a little bit in school fronting that I was, uh, that I was, uh, I was ready for this. You know, I was, I was there and I, everybody else, all the other kids like your started first, going your in. first day in the cell block. Yeah, exactly. You got, you screwed <laughs> up, you screwed up your courage. Maybe you took some courses and now you're ready. Went up to the biggest kid <laughs> who already had a mustache and, you know, and just clocked him like, come on. But you know, all the kids that w- it's not just it's very noticeable when everybody else is going into puberty and you are still playing with hot wheels cars this is why your camp but, is going to help so many people it's right but it's it, but it's also it's also noticeable when you're in third grade i mean you just i, I just did, i never i was always big and i always was articulate but i did not have the emotional maturity Ugh. to be there with you know and and uh, you know i graduated from high school when I was 17 and was not ready to be set loose on the world. So anyway, so you, you, you finished, you finished high school. You left high school. I eventually finished high school, <laughs> but, uh, but I got, <laughs> I got, I got, uh, we don't really, I, you know, only the French have a word for being asked to leave high school with credit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the English, there's no English word for that. Yeah. It's called bien sûr. Here you are. <laughs> La porte. <laughs> Permit permit me to escort you to La Puerta. (laughs) But all those records that came out, so, you know, up until 1980, I I think I've said this before, I was still listening to my parents' music, which in my dad's case was big band music. And right about 1980, I became uh, uh, suddenly hyper aware of pop music being a thing that other kid that there was a thing that you could you could differentiate between who the cool kids were and who the cool kids weren't and mm-hmm. pop music became this this uh, suddenly this monolith that was sticking up out of a gravel field at, that the who had just peed on <laughs> and um <laughs> and foreigner four i think was among the first few records that i was aware of in the moment you know it wasn't like hey dude you should listen to the beatles it was this record just came out and the other one of course was back in black both both apparently produced by the same man i will note Hmm. i did not again i i don't want to interrupt you but i have just learned from looking at this one page on wikipedia i have learned so much about four and four that i never knew including that it was produced by mr robert john mutt lang Wang. That's right. That was a big year. 1980, 81, uh, 82. Those were big years for Mutt Lang. Back in in Black's 80, right? Back in Black was a year before Foreigner 4. Yeah. So right in that, and you know, in The Wall by Pink Floyd. Mm -hmm. um, I think that was like late 79 or so. Yeah, but 80 was when it hit. I remember because I was in in seventh grade in uh, in military school and my, the guys in the next room had it. mm -hmm. High and Dry by Def Leppard. Also by uh, Robert, Robert John Mutt Lang. Mutt Lang production. So he was producing a lot of records. I can't. I can't imagine what his workload must have been like in 1980. Can you imagine if we have time at the end of this episode? I think we should go back and maybe review everything he did for those three years because I have a feeling 
Yeah, you obviously you have a lot of respect for the man, Shania, Shania Twain notwithstanding. Well, you know, there's so many there's so many myths about Mutt Lang, particularly that he would sit and record guitar chords one string at a time. And, what? Uh, no, 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 that's, that's I think the, they get a Ken Stringfellow. It's Ken, Ken Stringfellow no, did that. That's the old story about Def Leppard. Was he said, "Listen, these your, your guitar chords sound too muddy, so we're just gonna you're gonna you're gonna fret each." note individually and then we're going to mix it together and that'll be the, that'll at the, the be risk the of talking out of my ass that sounds very <laughs> much like the kind of thing someone who's never played an instrument or recorded in their life would say yeah it doesn't make any sense at it all it makes but, but absolutely that, no sense that that's like has, saying you should you know your automobile would go faster if we just went one tire at a time <laughs> uh but but uh but yeah i do i do have a tremendous respect for those records and if you, i can't believe this now that i'm now that i'm looking into this uh, High and Dry came out on in, on July 11th, and Foreigner 4 came out one week later. No I mean, way. Talk, talk about... Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. One week July earlier. 2nd. July 2nd. So, I mean, I was at that moment, July, July 2nd, 1981, I was almost surely playing Dig Dug at the Tasty Freeze at the corner of Lake Otis and Northern Lights. Diane sitting on Johnny's lap, <laughs> and I was not <laughs> sucking on a chili dog because that record came out right about that same time too. Uh-huh. That goddamn John Cougar record, and that was oh, it was yeah. that was the beginning of my consciousness. Right, I did not like the John Cougar record. I did John like the Cougar. Foreigner record. Were you watching and a lot of MTV at this point? Not MTV. this is this is the very early. Actually, you know what? This is I think this would be a month before MTV started. Yeah, when and I MTV, got it a year later, John Cougar, formerly Johnny Cougar, not yet John Mellencamp, just John Cougar at this point, that hurt so good, and Jack and Diane was on about every five or six minutes. Yeah. So MTV now I'm now I see was one month later. Four hundred four came out July first or July second. MTV launched August first, nineteen eighty one. You know what this is, John? This is our April nineteen. Uh, this is our April eighteen sixty five. That's exactly, that's exactly is, right. As they were the saying, Avengers. Over. Yeah, it's, a, it's the month. It's the month unlike any other. And now we we are beginning reconstruction, <laughs> and we are we we have become teenagers and filling and our carpet so we, bags. <laughs> we did not get MTV in Anchorage until later, so it didn't. It came in 1982, I think. Um, wow. But I was absolutely uh, my 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 aunt, my aunt Martha worked at the cable company in Anchorage. And so I don't, and I'm not sure at at the time I felt like maybe she was watching over us. Uh, But now that I think about it with a clear head, I realized that that's, that's not how things work. Your aunt at the cable company does not make your neighborhood be the first one to get cable in in Anchorage. Didn't you have to steal it from your betters? Didn't you have to, you you, you stole the the original, that was the one that they beamed, they beamed into like uh, chiclet shaped antennas that were on your roof. But no, when when cable finally came, where okay. they actually installed a cable in your house, we were in the first fifty families in the city to get it because our neighborhood was where they started. So I was one of the first Alaskans to get MTV, and wow. I just sat there Indian style with my nose. Oh, it was like for me, it was every 
especially with MTV, it was like every conceivable minute of the day. And it really, it reached a, it really reached a head when I wanted to watch MTV before school, because already I would get up late because I was a teenager. But boy, that was super controversial. And then I was always, I remember, I think about this today with my daughter and like, I'm always like, just one more, one more video. I just want to see one more. Just let me see what the next one is. Because there's no way, there's no TiVo, there's no way of knowing, you know. This right. could be and, it. This, this could be stand and deliver by Adam and the Ants. You never know. I should. I should could wait. Be, it could be stand and deliver. It could be. Uh, it could be Watt by Captain Sensible. It could be. Uh, it could be Video Killed the Radio Star. It could have been any of those. But it'll probably be only the Lonely by the Motels. Right. That was a, that was a hell. hell John, of a video. this is. I've got. I've got my cards. My cards runneth over. Um, first yeah. of all, I wish if you can see this. I don't know if you can see. I had written the word yes. That, that yes. you would probably have a soft spot. Now, what I had not accounted for was exactly how much I want to just do. Well, first, a couple. Well, qu- now wait a minute. Yeah, yes, no, has please a song go ahead. From that very era called it, "Leave It." Leave it by uh, the, uh, the the guy from the Buggles did that. Yeah, that's uh, Trevor Horn. Uh, that should be our. That should be uh, one of our one of our theme songs because "Leave It" is the thing that I am constantly saying to myself. Leave, leave it. it. Leave it. Leave it. <laughs> <laughs> I discovered the orchestra stab. But you know, cable TV at that era also introduced me to Benny Hill, which I, which my mind, my seventh, eighth grade mind, could only barely grasp that there was a, such a thing as Benny Hill, um, because it because Benny Hill, Benny Hill was my Mel Brooks. You know, he perfectly mm-hmm. he perfectly expressed the kind of tits and ass. Uh, the 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 exact amount of tits and ass that my brain was capable of handling, which was to say that Benny Hill would you know, would run past a girl and somehow her nurse's outfit would fall off mm. and you could see her pantyhose and then she would run She'd be after wearing him. like a lacy bra. She'd oh, be having man. a great lacy bra on and then they would run after each other around to the, you know, do... I feel like and, I got and, so ripped off. I saw, I've seen so few, I've seen like two lacy bras ever. In, in real life well i mean there was a point in the early 80s where i was writing that bra window where, where yeah. ladies would still where I, at one point i had a a, 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 a chestily gifted lady and she when she wore a lacy bra and it was you don't you don't look back from that boy that's that, you know what here's the thing if they if we if they had not if benny hill had not come along we would have had to invent him because you're right, he's yeah. right in the pocket. And also, I confuse him a lot with Benny, Benny Hinn. Benny Hinn, the uh, TV evangelist, I confuse <laughs> yeah. him with a lot. If, but when Benny Hinn came along, I realized <laughs> I did not need to invent him. Benny Hinn's a lot more fun to watch when he's, uh, you know, faith healing, and you're listening to Yakety Sax. <laughs> <laughs> Has your job gotten hotter than fresh pump chili? Tired of kissing the wrong bird? Mired down by your manager's fear of even the slightest frisson in corporate discourse? Well, you're not alone. Igloo Software understands your pain. Igloo helps you work better with other people by keeping your team, your files, and your conversations together in one digital workplace. You can even work from home in your all-together, sealed-to-your-red-leather chair just steps away from all your favorite globes, candlesticks, and cowboy boots, as you do. So go to igloosoftware.com slash findyourduck and sign up for your free 30-day trial. Bring your team in from the cold by getting inside the Igloo. In any case. <coughs> well, you know, the thing about Lacey Bras, yes. my problem with Lacey that's Bras. My new, is, that's my new pole dancer name, by the way. <laughs> Lacey Bras. <laughs> <laughs> I never, I, that, for whatever reason, did not click with me. And I, and I grew up in the era of looking at uh, girls' uh, underwear ads in the Sears catalog. Mm. Like, Lacey Bras should have been in my wheelhouse, but but as i as i grew up to be a, a a young adult and i started seeing lacy bras for the first time um i did not uh, lacy bras gave me no thrill and to this day 
when a, when a, a young lady uh, does the big reveal mm-hmm. and she has on fancy underwear, mm-hmm. I'm like, I think that's I got you know it's so funny because I, I we we I, I think we at this point probably should cease all discussion of ZZ Top videos because I think we've reached <laughs> the moratorium level but but I, that really that was imprinted on me you know like what is lazy bras lazy bras like Lauren like Conrad Lawrence and the ducks is that Conrad yeah. Lawrence yeah I got imprinting right so now I'm chasing yeah. ducks if you like yeah um, right. but right. you you are learning to fly my behind duck. an ultralight. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll, I'll get one shot. I get, I get a few, sh- not one shot. I got many, many shots of Lacey Bras. And let's be honest, I went through a lot of catalogs. Even before I understood what to do with them, I was yeah. hoarding them. And then when I did figure out what to do with them, I realized that that was my duck. You know? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, uh, w- w- the ZZ Top video imprinted on me that, uh, that a uh, neon pink mini skirt mm-hmm. was a thing that I could really, literally get behind. And I know you don't use that word lightly. <laughs> that is that. I mean, that girl. I'm talking about the one that had the lacy ankle socks. Are you talking about sharp, sharp dressed man? Uh, the shorter. Or give me hair. all your loving. Oh, that one. The little. Oh, she was a mix. <gasps> she was a mix. That's exactly right. Like, you could uh, tell the, she was even more. There's always there's one in each one. There's the one that's more like there's one in the um, there's one I think in not give me all your love. No, it's in sharp dressed man. There's one who you can tell is like twice as dirty as the other ones. Twice as dirty. That's exactly right. And and I and feel, the other ones feel, are pretty dirty, John. The, but the long blonde haired one, she's never as dirty as you want her to be. It's always the kittenish one mm-hmm. that kind of has the tousled hair Ugh. and, and the, the ankle socks. Mm-hmm. Anyway, le- leaving that aside. Well, here's the problem with the underwear, though, and I, I don't want to be—I don't want to say anything controversial here, but you know, it's—I've had this rule of thumb for a long time. I, I, like many of the great rules of thumb, I learned it too late. But we've talked about this a long time ago. You got to be careful where you meet people. Because, you know, do you really want to meet somebody at a place? Do you want to, do you want to go out with somebody that you met at a place you go to all the time? Because when you break up, you'll have to see them all the time. Or, like, if you accidentally... Don't shit where you eat is what that... Sure, what that don't shit where you never eat is the other one. So, like, if you <laughs> accidentally went to a class and learning latch hook rugs, uh, that maybe that's something you could enjoy. But, you know, now you have to understand that's a new culture. What I'm saying is this. If you meet somebody who's real, real... Comfortable taking off their clothes and has fancy underwear, red flag. Red flag. Mm-hmm. Because I'm just mm-hmm. saying, like, they're, they, I, I like the fancy underwear and, and, I, and I can enjoy the taking off the clothes fast, but those two together, that, that could be a stress bump. You right. know what I'm saying? Well, yeah. You're not the first <laughs> one. You're not the first one. You can gauge how your relationship will end based on how you and that person's other previous relationships have ended. You will never be any different. Right. Neither will she, right. unfortunately. Well, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm so confused. I'm still so confused. Really? Well, in the sense that, in the sense that I went into puberty with a lot of ideas about how it was going to go. Like I did, I was not somebody upon whom adulthood like uh, snuck up unawares, right? I think a lot of kids, a lot of kids in their, they're 10 years old. And then all of a sudden they start to have these feelings and they have no context for them. And so they're just following their instinct. But I was a person who, by the time he became an adult, had read so much about being an adult (laughs) and had, had thought about being an adult so much and prognosticated how being an adult would feel that when adulthood arrived, I had too many plans and I did not I did not take it I did not have an instinctual 
response to puberty or an instinctual kind of uh, transition from youth to adulthood. I was trying to push it. I was trying to get there faster. I was trying to, I felt like I already knew how it was going to go and was trying to get in, in between myself and adulthood and make some changes before it went wrong. And, wow. And in, in that way, you were kind of like in training. Well, and I was fucking my, I was fucking it up as I went, I, you know, somebody would, a a a 13 year old girl would, would, would walk up to me and say, uh, do you want to go with me? And I would say, go with you where? You know, it was, I was not paying attention to what was happening. I was trying to, I was trying to figure it out or I was trying to, I was trying to make sure that I didn't get duped. I was trying to make sure that I didn't get led astray. And so I had this, I had this mental picture that, uh, that it, uh, relationships were going to be hard, that you didn't want to, you didn't want to get uh, led down a primrose path by a fast girl, but you also didn't want to get stuck with a prude. And the reality was all the girls were 13 years old. There were the difference between a fast girl and a prude at 13 is like, uh, it's, you're talking about a stack of pennies. Cause it's also here. abstract. Like at that point, it's, you've got these, yeah. these abstractions that have no basis in reality. It's a little bit like trying to, again, trying to learn guitar, like not just by, playing air guitar on a, on a tennis racket, but getting tablature, but then trying to do it on a tennis racket. On a tennis racket, right. yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, you know, you, you're certainly going to pick some things up, but until you actually hold that guitar, it's it's yeah. not the same thing. Now, here's the other thing that's interesting about you, John, is you you've, you've stipulated for the record that you were never somebody who wanted to study up on intercourse. And I think right. a lot of people made the same mistakes that you're describing here, but they did it with intercourse. They thought that they could get a, you know, get a, a Betamax copy of Porky's and, and know... Uh, and know what to do. And you, you, you avoid that. You said, you said, leave it, but you focused on what you studied, what, like Kramer versus Kramer. You knew that you were in for a rocky road. That yeah. was, that was your porn. Divorce porn. Divorce Divorce porn was porn. my porn when I was 13 years old. And, and, and so, you know, like I had a, I had a good friend who, this, this friend that I'm talking about, uh, whose name was Kevin. He was a year older than I was. He was my best friend and he was a year more advanced than I was, uh, in, in all the emotional ways. You know, he and I maybe were peers in the sense that we were uh, we were in the same grade. You know, but but he was he was way way out in front, and he would call me and he'd say, "I uh, I was hanging out with um, you know Rachel the other day," and I would go, "Really?" And he said, uh, "Yeah." And we were it was fall, you know, it was autumn or whatever, and he would say, "I, I grabbed a bunch of leaves and I stuffed them down the front of her sweater," <laughs> and I was like. Well, that wasn't very polite. And he said, and then I, then I had to, then she was like, you need to get those leaves out of there. And then I, I reached down in front of her sweater and like one by one pulled the leaves out. Whoa. And I was like, well, that sounds like you might've touched her boob. And he was like, yeah, exactly. Like, like 15 times because I shoved 15 leaves down there and she was like, you have to get them out. And I did. He's a genius. Right. And I was, but, but I was, and she's in a position to say, get your goddamn hand out of my shirt. If she doesn't want it, you honor that like a gentleman or if she's clearly not. Yes. They conspired. She was not leaf averse. No, she was like, you need to get those leaves out of my sweater. And I'm, I'm listening to this story and I am aghast. Yeah. 
I and I feel I and I, and I and I start to lecture him, like, listen, I don't know. Are you sure you're ready for this? Like, touching boobs is a serious step. Like, are you prepared to honor that commitment? It would be like starting to smoke. It would be one of those things where you're like, that's not really for us. That's well, but but also like I felt like now having touched her boob in the pursuit of an errant leaf, he. <laughs> had entered into a tacit contract with this girl <laughs> that he needed to he needed to man up and and honor this honor the code mm-hmm. and he was like what are you talking about man i mean i just i i got i feel i feel some boobs and my feeling was well yeah but are you ready to get married uh, and i was i was just like i was so backwards on it and this whole question of like oh the fast girl it wasn't even that the fast... I was not worried about getting a stress bump. I was worried that the fast girl was emotionally hurt. Well, I, her, I would be too. But, was, her but, fastness was, a, was an expression of her emotional hurtness, and I was in a position to take advantage of that, and I, and I, was, a, I was an honorable man. Oh, God, never in a million years. But I, I'm totally sympathizing with her in that scenario, as it sounds like you would be, where you'd be going, well, that's, that's completely inappropriate. And the problem is also that you know, you've got this broken paradigm of fast. Neither of them is fast. They don't know what the hell they're doing. Yeah, right. Feeling, you know, putting your hand down the front of her shirt when they, you're in eighth grade, it's like... They have no idea what they're doing. It's, what the hell? Yeah. It's not, it certainly is an expression, isn't an expression of being fast or emotionally damaged or like on the way to being or on the way to working in a red light district in jakarta it's she's just a girl and she wants you to touch her boob and you want to touch her boob and so anyway or she, I was, or she just wants to see what it's like to have yeah. somebody you know what i mean it's a little different it isn't like she's sitting around going oh i want boob touching she's more like i don't know what the <laughs> fuck this is and these leaves are going to provide adequate cover for me to find out how this goes yeah right she's not she it's it's exactly right she didn't go into it thinking Maybe today is the day I that my boobs I can't touched. wait till fall. And that is, and that is exactly the <laughs> way sweater I weather. was approaching my teenage life. Like, uh, maybe today is the day that I find a way to brush up against a boob where no one owes anybody anything mm-hmm. and no one's going to end up divorced. <laughs> and, you know, and, uh, and, and by the time I finally did touch a boob, it was like, come on, Jesus Christ. That was a long time in the coming, and, yeah. and you know this girl was just like, "Come on, get get real, seriously." So this is what happens when you think too much thinking, way too, too much, much thinking. thinking, too much thinking, and it was it was a way it was it was thinking as a way of trying to get in front of all the fear that I felt about these transitions that I think other at least the kids I admired. Uh, and, I, and it's not that I admired them as people, but I admired their progress. I, re, I admired the reports that you get. Because eighth grade is also when you start getting real reports about other kids. Like, did you hear what, did you hear what Derek did? Mm-hmm. What? What did Derek do? A lot of summers. A lot, you come back from summer and you hear a lot of intel about what yeah, went down. People got finger banged and all these terrible things where it was just like finger banged. My, my, uh, my, my, my second best friend at the time did some finger banging over the was, summer. You know, was anybody hurt? I know. Like, Finger bang? That sounds really violent. Yeah, I still thought vaginas were on the front of the pelvis at that point. Uh, the, you know, based on my Somewhere own between the belly button and the, and lower, the knee. lower down, more like I, I thought. I thought it was. I thought it was more like like Basic how you would, like a USB port. Yeah, third eye. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, I'm sitting there and imagine that and the logistics of that and you got popcorn and uh. then you got to eat it. And I, I don't yeah. know. There's just so much about that. That was such a morass for me. I was scared to look for the longest time. I just, I, for the longest time, I just, I wanted to, it was a mystery. I knew it was a mystery. I would try to draw it from memory. Uh, even though I didn't have any memories, I would look in books and it was just, oh. And then here's the thing. So you go home that night. You find out about the leaf incident. You go home. Oh, it's not on your mind, right? You just you sit around and watch uh, watch uh, you know watch game shows. No, I would sit and I would think about that for three days, and I would get mad if I were thinking about your what's his name, Derek. No, Kevin. Kevin. I would sit there and think about Kevin and the leaf girl, and I would I would talk about ruminating. I would obsess over that probably for like a week and, well, and, and just and get more emotional about it. It's funny how how being mad is the response because the next day at school. I would be unable to look at her. I would be mad at her. Yeah. Not not I would be mad at her because she allowed herself to be violated by my best friend. And I yeah, and all of these are very um in in one way they're they're much more sophisticated feelings than I had any right to have because I didn't understand that they were they were above my pay grade. Um like why those were my responses. Uh, is 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 in some ways still a mystery to me, and 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 those responses like uh, like changed they they affected what I did next, and so in that way changed my life, and and are still I still feel them as a burden now, even at in my forties. Mm. And I when I think about whether I, when I when I imagine my life, that small choice. I mean, there's there there are not very many choices that you can make that in the moment kind of feels so small. But if, if my folks had said, let's hold him back a year and I had started kindergarten at five and turned six in that first few weeks. I mean, I honestly cannot imagine a thing that would have made my life more profoundly different than to have been one of the oldest kids in my class rather than one of the youngest. Um, I'm glad we held our daughter back. We're, uh, we'll let her do another year of the uh, before kindergarten stuff, and I'm, I'm starting to feel she'll know when it's time to stuff the leaves, I think. Yeah, I don't think, there's any, I don't think there's any reason to ever push a kid if you can, if you can hold them back. I can understand. This is, this is where we get, we're gonna, you're, you're going to get an email about this. But we, uh, we, uh, I can understand if you were – well, see, here's the thing. I also must hear. Okay. So for what it's worth, my mom was in that position. She got jammed in early. She hated it. She was already small. She already felt like she wasn't super duper smart, but they dropped her into the public school because she, she was born in November. I'm born in November. You're born in December. Eleanor's born in October. We're all in that area. Boy, you're really, that's crazy that they sent you in. That's too, that's, that's September. nuts. I was born in September. That's nuts. So well, it wasn't that crazy, but it was I, geez, I, I don't know. I mean, but I, all I'm saying is like, I, my school, mom went the, in early people, and hated it. People said, are you sure about this? And, you know, I think at that time in the, in the early seventies, the idea was push them. You know, this was, push, that was the zeitgeist the of our age. My, my mom, my, well, the, the other thing I was going to say there is that, that I'm, my mom hated being early and I loved being late. So I was November, in November and I went, I started when I was five and I was always on the older, I wasn't larger because I'm not a big person, but it made a huge difference. And you could just see the shrimpy kids that had gotten in too early and they already had everything going against them and it just made it a thousand times worse. They were, they got Conrad Lawrence by the schools and the, and the kids and then they were always the shrimpy kid until they left and probably became a tower sniper. 
And they never, and they never got a not a good, never probably never got a good handful of leaves unless they dragged somebody out to a culvert and, or something. And I think I think what happened in the seventies was that we had we had all these new techniques to 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 measure a child's intelligence, but no one had really formulated the idea that emo, that an emotion that there was an emotional intelligence and that it matured. Oh. At a different rate. Oh, my God. So true. I think there's two big points. First of all, you've got, in my case, starting it's, – it's, it's so staggering to me to think about what public school was like for me when I was 10 versus what it's like for a 10-year-old today because this is back in the days when you know we still had funding out the butt. You know, There were kids who came in there, and that, their, the school was their parent. They came right. in and got free breakfast at 7 in the morning. They stayed. There were after-school programs. There were sports. So you know, on the one hand – you know, there was the money there where you could say, well, at least I know if I put my four-year-old into kindergarten, you know, it's going to be okay. They're going to get a hot meal and they're not going to end up in jail. Yeah. And now today, I don't think that same guarantee is there. I mean, like we'd rather pay a little bit of dough and have her in this, you know, it's different for everybody. I'm not trying to judge, but like, I think there's a lot more confidence, but also John, you and I, I don't know how this was in your house, but we're also from, if you think about that swinging pendulum, I think you and I are from the age of don't be nice to your kid or they'll become fruity. (laughs) Right. Don't, the thing is, if you, if you breastfeed, if you breastfeed, it's going to be inconvenient and you're going to make a fruit. Yeah. They're going to be a little fruit. Don't be, don't be too supportive. You know, well, the, you know, I think the main argument that my parents had about my upbringing was that my mom really guarded my uh, the time that I spent sitting staring at a spot on the wall, and my dad had that the the reaction that you're describing, which was, "What's the matter with that little fruit? He's been sitting and staring at a spot on the wall for two hours." He needs to get the fuck up and go out and, and throw a ball around. Right. And my mom that's not, would, that's not how you become a senator. My mom would jump in front of him and she'd be like, David, shh. Now he's doing something. It's not clear what. But we need to <laughs> we need to like respect this. And he would go, God damn it. It's not right. There's something wrong. He's look at him. And I'd be sitting there absolutely catatonic <laughs> staring at a spot on the wall and in my imagination i was commanding a flotilla of space battleships <laughs> and my dad was like i don't know what he's thinking about but i don't like it yeah if, and, they, if, if either one of them had guessed they'd both be wrong <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah my mom was thinking that i i don't know that i was byron and i was writing uh or you I was, were like improving the quadratic equation something like that and what i was really doing was fighting an epic epic space battle or I was refighting World War II because I started doing that in 19, 1974, and I've been refighting World War II ever since. I have fought World War II. I've fought every battle of World War II a thousand times in my imagination. You could have done it better, couldn't you? I, every aspect of it I could have done better. You think but that's so my, purely from hindsight or just that you're the superior strategist? Or, or more. Well, it's also you've got a certain amount of emotional detachment maybe. You understand? You know, it's very hard to know how any of us would have. Or would have reacted in real time. But if I were Herman Goring, mm-hmm. I would not have let the Battle of Britain go the way it went. Let's just say that. Let's just say that. Let me ask let, you this. Leaving, if you, leaving leave the it. invasion of Russia aside. <laughs> so, let's, no, that's another show. But, okay, I don't want to think it's all about Hitler. But if you were Hitler, yeah. would you have cracked down on the SA, A, a lot sooner, B, a lot later or never, or C, just in whatever that 34, Night of the Long Knives. Your opinion on, on dealing with Ernst Röhm in the essay, did, how was Hitler's timing on that? Because I've written something down. 
let's just stipulate he needed the support. He needed the support of the uh, of the uh, the various industry. You know uh, what, what's the word I'm looking for? The captains of industry. That's right. Das, das Kapitans, das, das Alf, Industries, and Verken. Scheiße. Scheiße. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the thing is, if I, and I'm, you know, I'm leading, I'm leading you toward what's already on my card, but I'm just saying BMW and, and Bear and uh, the Zyklon B people. Krupp. 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 Fucking Krupp. They were all way more into Hitler after he got the goons out of the streets, but he never would have gotten there without the fucking goons. Your opinion, John Roderick. <laughs> essay too early essay too late the, you know the I, I feel like a, i feel like one of the things that we that we can't know that we that we that, that we underestimate how difficult it was domestically for hitler particularly as his particularly because his constituency was not just the germans in germany but the germans in all of central europe that right. we that we forget about. You said right? after World War One, people are scattered. All, there's Germans living in Czechoslovakia. They don't think of themselves as 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 being Slavic. They think of themselves as being Germans. They're displaced Germans, basically. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, for 700 years before World War One, there's Germans right, everywhere. Right, right, right. There's Germans all over Europe. Mm. And you know, Hitler has this Hitler has this constituency that he that he either believes is his or actually is his. But in either either way, like there is no. You know, uh, there is. Uh, it isn't like England, where the borders of England are are it's water all around, and there's no big community of English living in France. You know, it's uh, England is a discreet little empire. It's a it's a castle basically with a with a big moat, <laughs> and Germany is Germany is a is a fried egg that's splattered all over. You know, from I mean, the the Swedes are the Swedes identify sort of as Germanic, or I mean, they certainly felt a lot more common cause with the Germans than than they would like you to remember. Mm-hmm. Um, there are Germans everywhere. So this this problem of I was I was reading this interesting thing on Metafilter the other day about the question of why the intelligence agents of Germany failed so spectacularly why the british had such great intelligence and why the germans had such terrible intelligence and one of the interesting comments was that all the great intelligence agents all all, all that you know it's a it's a special kind of person that becomes a spy and all the great german spies were busy spying on the 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 first the, their fellow germans and second, like all the partisans in all the countries that they occupied, like the German spies weren't spying on the British; they were spying oh, on I see. each other and on Germans. Love that. Well, yeah, but that that fucked them up in the war because the British knew what the Germans were doing, and the Germans were the Germans were fooled multiple times in the war by by intelligence. Uh, Operatives, the British would say, "Oh, we're invading over here." And then they would invade over I, here. I mean, is this is this too reductive? Or you're saying that it, it isn't like you're not you're not saying that the Germans distrust their own people almost as much as the English, but they don't. There isn't there's there's enough diversity. Or uh, well, this is the SA tumult. problem that you're talking about. Like yeah. there were a lot of Nazis who didn't like Nazism. There were a lot of Germans who were forced 
into uh, swearing an oath of allegiance. They, they, they weren't into the, and we have to also stipulate not to defend Hitler, you know, as you do. But 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 before a lot of that came to light, a lot of it was just you know cultural saber rattling. It was it was much more about economics. Yes, you could certainly scapegoat these people, but in the beginning, you you had a, you had a bunch of people who were tired of having their ass kicked. And there were some people who just like to have fist fights. <laughs> Don't you think? Don't you think the brown shirts? They were just goons, a lot of yeah. them. They were skinheads. Was Ernst Rome? I mean, you know, or like his, I don't know that many SA people, but he, you know, I, I know I know he liked dudes, which is awkward. But but, uh, but that's the thing. The, 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 the Nazis came to power by bullying everybody. And so they, have, they had a lot of people in Germany that resented them, that, could, that they couldn't afford to say so. But when it came time, you know, when somebody in a trench coat sidled up to them in a dark alley and said, hey, uh, you know, things aren't looking so good for Germany uh, after the war. We'll give, you a, we'll give you a special place somewhere if you just let us know where you're keeping all the 50-gallon uh, drums of heavy water. And there were guys who were like, you know what? Yeah, fuck these guys. Here, here's the secret plans. Hmm. And it's because they were never Nazis to begin with. And... Uh, and they were, and you know, they had no allegiance or loyalty to the, to the party in in the sense that the in the and the British, for instance, you know, they were just defending their homeland. There was no it transcended party politics for them. There was no 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 one was no Eng, no uh, Britain was gonna uh, was gonna betray England unless he was a real anti semite or a, a nut nutcase, you know. Mm-hmm. So. So it, anyway, the the thugism in the short term, the brown shirtism, you know, had there 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 are a lot of repercussions in the in the in the short term, like you're saying in the 30s. But long term, the fact that they brought the the fact that the first people that the Nazis brought under their boot were the Germans mm-hmm. resulted in. I mean, there were all kinds of fanatical followers, but some of the aristocrats that hitler really could have used on his team they were playing both sides against the middle well and isn't that isn't that ultimately one of the things that made uh the the events around night along night so successful was that he also sent a message he sent a message to i mean he had trouble all along with the military right the the actual the 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 general the the generals were extremely suspicious at best of him and this sort of sent a message the german army command Mm -hmm. in the 30s they still had huge feathers in their hats you know what i mean like i mean is it worth for our listeners isn't it worth isn't it worth (laughs) clarifying that there was not like one big clubhouse that all these guys lived in I mean, as late as like 1932, 33, 34, there was still a huge amount of suspicion about the guy. Well, this is the thing about the, this is the thing about arist- the aristocracy. This is, I mean, up until up until the 1860s in Europe, 1868, all these countries were ruled by kings and had been for a thousand years, and there were fits and starts. Um. Different countries became parliamentary, you know, they deposed their, starting after the French Revolution. Um, we, we, we lost kings kind of gradually. Uh, the French lost their king first, and then little by little, uh, the aristocracy was declining in power. But by the, in the early 20th century, those, the cl- class still played such a huge role in how Europe thought of itself 
and the the military was traditionally where the the high high born people went into the officer corps and hitler was a hitler was some rat he was a he was a an orphan in a gutter snipe you know uh, so these people had no respect for him at all. But it was also the rise of the industrialist, and a lot of those industrialists were aristocrats, and a lot of them were self-made men. You know, uh, the the all the currents, the social currents that were boiling in Central Europe throughout the end of the 19th century and into the early 20th century, they all had to do with this this uh, this sense that the that there were no more kings, but what's going to govern us? Is it going to be an, is it going to be an idea? Is it going to be like an an, an idea that two men had, Marx and Engels? Like here, here we we have we have envisioned the whole exchange between men, and we've written it down in a couple of books. And these are these are ideas that are stronger than anything that that we might have. They're stronger than tradition, and they're stronger than any firsthand experience that anybody might have had. This idea is a is an overlay that we're going to we're going to start looking at our lives in light of this concept now, you know, and, and that, that let the, that let the mice out of the box and everybody had an idea. Everybody had a new idea of how capital and labor interacted with each other. And people were literally fighting about it in bars, Hmm. not, not, not just in Germany, but I mean, this was the, this was the world my dad grew up in here in Washington state where you're getting in fist fights in bars with people in arguments over the relationship between labor and capital. And now we've, we live in a, in a world where these ideas are not, certainly they are, um, they've been so, they've been so hacked at with sabers from both sides that you talk about the tea party or the, the, the election that we're having in America right now, we're still having a national argument about, the relationship between labor and capital, but nobody has nobody has a common language anymore. Nobody's really talking about it like we're talking about it. We're yelling at each other about this little discrete. We're we're, we're yelling at each other about specific points of light, you know, rather than anybody coming at it and saying, "Here's my philosophy." It's um because the Republican Party feels like we don't need a philosophy. We need. Our philosophy is laissez-faire. Let everybody do what they want to do. And, you know, and the Democrats have been called communists for 90 years, so they can't, the Democratic Party can't stand up and say, we've got a plan. And it's an overarching plan that addresses the relationship between labor and capital. And here's what it requires. It requires that some people, some people take it in the shorts, you know, um, it, 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 because because we want free lunches in our schools. It's also uh, it also puts any any. This is pretty rough, but if you um, it makes any theoretical group of people less effective if they either a mostly agree on what they don't want or b can't even agree on what they don't want. And that's, that's the, that's, I'm not saying you have to have like some kind of philosophy or, a, you know, a persuasive theory, but, you know, if the, that's one reason I think the Democrats can often seem so scattered is that it, it, it is kind of limp sometimes. There is not, there's almost an embarrassment about having a strong philosophical underpinning that you can stand behind in a bar brawl. There's, right. there's nothing, there's nothing that feels muscular 
to most liberals in a way that they would stand up. And, you know, and again, you just, you sound like a whiny kid some of the time, because if you really believe in it, in the way that those guys at that union meeting did, you're going to stand up and say it. And it's going to be more, it's going to be muscular as hell. It's yeah. just that I think most people, again, we become like children. We maybe at best we become like teenagers because we identify very heavily with who we don't want to be, who we don't like, and who we want to smite for hurting us, which yeah. is not nearly the same thing as saying, no, no, here, here is, here is a, here is a frame that we need to fill with a certain kind of picture. And that's going to take a lot of courage. And it's going to, a lot of resolve and a lot of money. And, and I just, I think sometimes, to be honest, I think conservatives are better at that. They're better at, at putting on a, to paraphrase a quote I heard the other day, you know, either put, give them a good fight or you give them a good show. I think the conservatives tend to do better <laughs> fights and better shows. Yeah. But because the, the, the conservatives, I mean, the, the, the liberals have gone down this weird path where they have, they have appointed themselves the guardians of everyone who has a grievance, you know, we, we the guardians have, of grievances, the, gar, the guardians of grievance, you know, and, and, and they, we have, we've gone from the idea that there are inalienable human rights to a much more watered down idea that everyone has rights. Everyone has the right to redress for what they perceive to be their injuries, and those are not the same. Those, those are not the same idea of of what constitute rights. You know what I mean? Like it, mm-hmm. the right to the when the conservatives talk about your rights, they're always talking about the right to property, the right to bear arms, and when when liberals talk about rights, they're talking about they're talking about this this. The, the, what, what was originally a concept of civil rights, which is a right to vote and a right to be protected by the police, right. that's now been translated into the right to uh, not just the right to be a brony, because I will defend to the death someone's right to be a brony. Mm-hmm. Patrick Henry said that. But the right to be a brony and not have anybody tease you, right. which is not a right... Which I don't think you can call a right. You know that is not a right. Well, it's you've you've you've, you've put this so well in the past. The way I, in my head, I'm, what I'm hearing is, you know, w- w- there's a certain kind of liberal mentality, which is like you not only can't say do these things, you not only can't say certain things, you not only shouldn't even think certain things, but. In order for me to protect the people that you might potentially offend with that, you should apologize to me. You know, when you say things about bronies, you should apologize to me and I'll let them know. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's that whole thing of like, you know, there's nothing to make anybody into a, a, a gelding minority, as we've said, (laughs) better than having white people apologize and defend them. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, and, and, but really you become, you become like this existential lawyer for people who never ask for counsel and you show up and you go out and you say, like, yeah, all I can think of, I always think of Olive Oil's father in that terrible Popeye movie. You owe me an apology. <laughs> you, you know, he owes me an apology. What do you, you mean just, terrible Popeye movie? That was a great yeah, Popeye good. movie. Yeah. It was a it little was, like, even for, even if you watch it on DVD, the cocaine literally shoots out of the, <laughs> into your eye. And what an unusual choice for was it Robert Altman that did that? Yeah. Robert Altman just deciding. Do you think it was a cocaine thing that he finally oh. just decided I'm going to do a musical about an unfilmable cartoon? 
yeah. that nobody watches okay. anymore. Cocaine. <laughs> I, I think what happened. A lot of the seventies can be explained by cocaine. Is that fair oh, to say? Sure. Absolutely. Yeah, I want to come back to the eighties, into the mid eighties. Okay, go ahead. The whole decline of Chevy Chase. It's all cocaine. Oh, that's a that's a fucking pity. Somehow, yeah. somehow, uh, you know, your guy, your your good friend, Bill Murray, mm-hmm. survived it. I don't know how. Survived it human. I got a feeling he did a lot of cocaine. Oh yeah, but but somehow he he kept his sense of what humor. What about Steve Martin? You think Steve Martin did cocaine? Did you read his autobiography? I listened to the book on tape, and you I enjoyed know? it very very much. I just heard him on Fresh Air in a in a uh, repackaged uh, re edition of multiple interviews that they'd re edited from a re edit for the DVD re 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 release. And Dave <laughs> Davies was in there instead of Terry Gross, who was in for Dave Davies, who was in for, yes. And I and I heard that interview. Yeah. And Steve Martin sounds like he should have done cocaine, but may not have done that much cocaine. He seems yeah. like he has his head about him. Steve Martin, talk about a guy who was shagging some babes. No. In really? the 70s. He did some shagging. But the thing about Steve Martin, I get the sense, is that he shagged some babes, but not without some not without thinking about it. He didn't just shag a babe. He shagged a babe and then he thought about it a little bit. And I bet and, he didn't uh, I bet he didn't tell anybody. No, 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 no. He's a man of. He's a man of. He's a honor. very private person. So I do feel like he probably tried some cocaine, but I, I, I think, I think he, uh, he was not. He never. I don't think Steve Martin ever uh, descended into that pit of hell. He just wanted to be a good magician. Have you ever seen the card that he used to give to people? No, I don't think so. I admire this a lot. Um, this is this is true. I've met somebody who who got one of these. You can search for Steve Martin card on the internet, and you will find this. Um, Steve Martin's a very private man. Are you going to send me a, uh, a link to it? Oh, yeah, of course. I'm sorry. Um, I, uh, it's a very private man, and, yeah. n- you know, notoriously so. He won't even talk about, for a long time, apparently, he wouldn't even, you know, everybody knew that he liked art, but he wouldn't even talk about, like, what art he owned. Like, he's, he's just, he's really, it's really, it's a, he's an interesting fella. Anyway, you, you, you uh, he, you know, uh, he doesn't like to be bothered. He's, he's, you know, with people, he's not with people, he's sitting, he's enjoying a meal, and somebody comes up and goes, oh my God, Steve Martin, you're so great, we've got to hug you, could I get you, and Steve Martin is not a man who likes, so as you can see, Steve Martin would hand you, a, he would say, he would say, can I give you your autograph, and Steve Martin would hand you a pre-printed card that says, this certifies that you've had a personal encounter with me, and that you found me warm, polite, intelligent, and funny. <laughs> that's all anybody wants that's all anybody wants I was at a restaurant one time with Zoe Deschanel and we walked out of the restaurant onto the sidewalk and there was a little group of people this, this, was, this was before she had her TV show there's a little group of indie rock people a couple of girls a couple of boys they had skinny pants on and big chunky glasses <laughs> And they had, they saw us go in and they waited patiently outside for an hour or two or however long we were in there eating dinner. And we came outside and they were like, Oh my God. 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 And Zoe was very, very uh, gracious with them and she signed all their things. And then out came their cameras. And Zoe said, Hey, you guys. I really don't feel like having my t- picture taken right now because I just feel I'm just out having lunch. With a friend, is that cool? And they were all like, "Oh, totally, totally. Oh, of course." And nobody took our picture, and and off we go. And it was an encounter where Zoe was very human with them, and all they wanted was a card from her that said, "This certifies that you have had a personal encounter with me." Mm-hmm. And the picture was going to be that, 
But then when Zoe asked them not to take a picture in a really nice way, that became the card. You know, oh, now, geez, now a, that's on Facebook. Now they had a story. Ugh. They didn't need the picture anymore because now they had a story where they're like, you know what? I met Zoe Deschanel one time and she asked me not to take her picture and it was really cool. And it, and it was a, it was a. Oh, so that you're saying they actually really didn't mind. They didn't take a picture and they didn't mind hmm. because now they had a story. And that strains credulity. Well, it's, I think it's true. And that's why. That's if awesome. Martin, it's awesome. If I walked it, up to Steve Martin wow. and said, Hey, Steve Martin, I'm a huge fan. And he had, and he said nothing. He handed me this card and like winked at me and then yeah. went back to what he was doing. I would walk away with that card and I would say, I would, you know, check it. Right. I would, I would, I would show that card to everybody for a year. I like, think you and the, and the Zooey Eastas are, are different in that regard. It's pronounced Zooey, by the way, are, are different from most people in that regard uh-huh. where, and I've been this creepy guy and I've been on the receiving end of this creepy guy, which is it will never stop escalating. It will start with, it could be a playful jiving, jibing rather. It could be a, you know, hey, oh, you're the, from the thing. And then it's going to be, it might be a signature. And then it's going to be a picture. And then pretty soon, like that person wants to move in. So yeah. as with as with a, a friend of ours, penis on your pants. Mm, yeah, <laughs> yes. Now, now she's probably You're had like, some oh, penises on her get pants. Your penis off my pants. Now she get your penis off my pants. I know no, where to draw the line. She moves fast. She's not. Nobody's nobody's getting close to her that way. Yeah, but that, she, but isn't that a skill? And to be, we have a we have a mutual friend who would be embarrassed if we said this about him. But he's awfully good at that. We have a mutual friend who's awfully good at being exactly as gracious as he wants to be, and mm. then making it very clear that we're done now. And right. I. I, I I, I, we have several other mutual friends who envy that ability. Enviable <laughs> <Yes>. ability. <laughs> it is because you don't, you know. I guess especially if you have a certain kind of taciturn public image, that you can get away with that more. You know what I mean? But yeah. you know, it. Ugh. I, I had a very, I had a very uh, uh, strange lunch the other day with a friend who uh, we were talking. Uh, we were talking about ourselves and and how difficult it is to be happy sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, this friend is a mutual friend. This friend I had lunch with is a mutual friend of yours and mine who owns a local record label. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, my dad was a jerk uh, my whole life because he believed that he was destined for bigger things than the things that he had in front of him. And he was, he was mad about it. He was a jerk to everybody. And I just had a conversation with him very recently where he said um, that he realized that he was not failing to live up to his potential his whole life. That in fact, it was just that his potential was not as great as he thought. Oh, and that in fact, God, that's a double, had, double ouch. In fact, he had been living up to his potential the entire time. Oh, shit. And that what he should have been doing was just realizing that and being happy. And so he was miserable because he was kicking himself his whole life, not achieving as much as he. That's that is a that is a German film. Holy and, shit, that hurts. And instead, yeah, instead he should have been happy his whole life because he was actually, he was actually doing, he was actually working t- to his capacity the whole time. And and sitting across the table from this guy was like, I don't know, I don't know which part of this hurts me more i don't know which part i don't know which side of your little lesson that you're trying to impart to me is is grosser is harder for me to swallow like either i am 
either I'm actually living up to my potential right now, and I'm miserable for no reason. <laughs> I don't know who which, to feel sorriest for. <laughs> which, which is fucking that sucks. Yeah. Are you kidding me? Uh, and, and and the lesson is that I just need to be content and happy with what I what I what I am doing now, and not aspire and not be on top of myself all the time, trying to charge forward and and be better. Uh, that causes me, you know, great despair. Or the the alternative is that I do that my whole life and am miserable. And then when I'm old, I look back and go, "Oh, that was that was all for naught." <laughs> and and just when we're done recording, please not live. I would love to hear which one of those messages you think he was sending to you, because <laughs> that could really say a lot about the next five years of your life. Well, no, I actually grabbed him by the shirt and was like, "Do you <laughs> honestly think I'm living up to my potential? Tell me." And he was like, "No, no, not at all." And I was like, "Thank you." What's in the box? What's in the box? <laughs> Goddamn right I'm not living up to my potential. <laughs> Fucking A. Don't you start telling me that I'm living up to my potential. What a what a terrible thing to say to somebody. Oh, that is awful. It's like you don't sweat much for a fat girl. <laughs> but, but but which way do you go on I that? know. I know. Which way do you go? I don't know. I, ugh, I, I know. Well, here, think about this, though. Boy, just examples from what we just, just talked about. Um, do you remember the anecdote Steve Martin talking about his dad and how his dad, like, I think was pretty much like just about on his deathbed before he ever said anything really nice about his work. He'd been on all these, you know, he, he was a huge success. I mean, he was a ridiculously huge success to where he was able to walk. Steve Martin was able to walk away from his career making career to just right. go do something else. I mean, what could be more he was the attractive first comedian to play stadiums and, and maybe the only comedian to really play stadium shows like 40,000 people. Right. Would come to watch Steve Martin put a uh, wear that arrow through the head thing and and well and what's and what's weird for people like you and me like you remember when you're younger and everything feels like it's you know takes longer every school year feels like it takes forever. His first album came out I think in 1975, the same year he first appeared on Saturday Night Live, which was the career maker for him. I yeah. think his last record was like 1982, maybe. I mean, he did all of that like arrow through the head guy stuff. And then just walked away and said, that's it. You know, I'm done here. Like the jerk is really much closer to Steve Martin, the stand up than say, you know, Steve Martin in like Roxanne or something. But it was really, he was like what Spy Magazine uh, at the time, uh, he was at the time what Spy Magazine would later call a celebrity refusenik, right? Where he (laughs) stopped stand up in 19, wait for it. Yeah. 81. Oh, come on! 1981. Well, I got four and four. I've accidentally, accidentally written on three cards, so we should come back to that. But but his father... Okay, so you got that. Um, you know what else you got here? You got... Uh, what's his name? Joe Jackson. Not not the one guy. The other guy. The father of the Jackson Five. Total oh, dick. Right, right, M- right. The classic. Murray Wilson. Um, no, blue eyes that guy has. The, the, is that the, right? The Jackson's father oh, that's very has, handsome like, on an African-American. Oh, he's mm-hmm. got a creepy earring. Look at that. And Murray Wilson, the uh, father of uh, Brian and the uh, and the boys. So disapproving fathers or fathers that re- that, that that don't give Murray, don't give approval. Yes, and in the case of Murray, uh, Murray's always felt you know. For, first of all, he had a glass eye and would take it out and make Brian look in the hole. Mm. Yeah, um, and uh, and uh, and so no, but Murray had inserted himself into every aspect of their career because he was a failed um, musician. He was like he 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 had he did not have Brian Brian like when he was still lucid. Well, pseudo lucid. He had more talent, you know, in his pinky than than his father had his entire life. But this is the story over and over. You hear these stories. I guess what this is like Gypsy Rose Lee, whatever. All these stories you hear about. I'm just saying, like it's we've got you know we got we got to steer around this, John, with our kids. We're obviously we're already pretty good and fucked up. Yeah, but, but we don't we don't want to we don't want to we don't want to withhold our love and approval from our children. 
I, I watch I watch too many movies. I watched the first half of a movie I heard was really good last night, and I thought it was okay good. It's this movie about this old guy in uh, Japan who makes what's considered the best sushi in the world. Oh. Uh, it's, I think it's called, you know, like, there's, there, there, do you know this movie, that, Jiro, Jiro Dreams of Sushi, I think it's called? I don't know the movie, but, but there is, uh, in Japan, a cultural... Um, like, there is the best woodcutter in japan the best barrel maker in japan there's a there's a cultural imperative to find the craftsperson in each of the of the traditional japanese arts and like identify him or her as the greatest ex in japan and like shower this person with money and accolades and wow so, really yeah isn't that huh, a, that isn't seems that really thing? super japanese it's very japanese and but it's also like can you imagine I mean, I, I think you have to have a kind of, you have to have a, a somewhat of a uniform culture in order to to say like, oh, barrel making is a great art of Check. our people. I think we could call <laughs> and, that a pretty uniform culture. And this guy, this guy is the great barrel maker, and or you know that whole business of like the uh, the the calligraphy. Oh right. You know there is the greatest calligrapher in Japan, and he's a national treasure. And I think that's what they're called, national. National, National treasures. You become like the Easter. Yeah, there's there's except a lot. It's in Japanese. There's a lot of stuff that people are very concerned about in Japan that feels like a Mister Show sketch to me. It's because there's people who see distinctions and things that are lost on me. But Tsukiyabashi Jiro, don't touch my mustache. And so he, in one part of this, and personally, I don't know. It, I I don't know. They had the Philip Glass soundtrack, which is always problematic. Well, this is the thing: perfect the art of sushi. Yeah. Now, when we start talking about the art of sushi. Mm-hmm. Then we're into this world of like, is there an art of French fries? Is there an art of? Is there an art of booger picking? Like these I are see. these are concepts that in Japan I think you could get into a fistfight in a bar over. Like, is he the greatest booger picker in all of Japan? Mm-hmm. Has he has he gone through his apprenticeship? Has, has he, he really put in the has he put years? in the miles? Has he has he fingered the finger? Has he really gotten in there long enough? Yeah. And deep enough, let's and say. And at a certain point, at a certain point, and this is, the, this is the mystery of Asia, this is what makes Asia so inscrutable, not to get ping pong. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> if you do something long enough, does, do you, it, first of all, do you become a master at it? And second of all, is that the road to enlightenment? If you, if you just sit and, and, you know, press your finger into your taint, into that soft area between mm-hmm. your your pooper and your genital. Yeah. You just press on it. Yeah. And then release, press and release, mm-hmm. press and release. Mm-hmm. And do that for 40 years. Will you... I see. Will you achieve a higher consciousness? You become uh, a tainty son. Could you become the the the? There's, there's a word for this. Uh, he's the. They use this word. I think I know what you're talking about. I think they use this actual word. The sushi. I'll look for it later. But tasty, yeah, that's tasty a, boy. I want to fork this one into four episodes because there's a lot to finish here. I'm always interested in talking about the taint and in yeah, Japan. I know you do. And uh, my goodness, uh, the. Uh, but he says something to his son. So he has, he has two sons. He has oh. one son who is is, uh, and so basically it's three hundred dollars. You come into this place. It's got a bar. Son, to see this movie? No, no. I watched on Netflix. I was laying in bed. Oh, I was kind of feeling a little sick, so I was watching it in really? bed. But uh, I, I, you know, I, it was good. I, it's. I don't think it's. I, I, I didn't finish it. It's got ninety nine percent on Rotten Tomatoes, but I thought it was a little samey. And uh-huh. again, Philip Philip Glass. You know, 
<laughs> how many how many more songs can he get out of da 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 da? I get it. One five one five one five. I swear to God, I thought it was—I thought it was a joke. I thought it was like it was like a. a, a I really a, want you to do your Philip Glass impression at, at one <laughs> at, of our live our concerts. live performance, which we should mention probably. Um, but he's just—he's talking about his kids, and he's talking about the fact that one time he slept in late on a Sunday, and is literally, honestly, one of his kids said, "There's a stranger in the house," because he would leave for work at five in the morning and come home after ten at night, and he continues to work every day. If he goes to a funeral, he's eighty some years old. If he goes to a funeral, his his son who. Who's 51 and works for him fills in the place has 10 seats it's $300 a plate it takes about 15 minutes to eat this in a normal situation it's booked a month in advance and it's the only like michelin three-star place of its kind in the entire world but he sits there in front of his son and he talks about like to, to this point saying he's saying you know too many people like say you're you know say these things to their kids you know uh, you know it's gonna be fine you have to tell them you have to push them out of the house and say you don't have a home here anymore you have no home here right you've got it you basically pushing in the sense of like pushing them out of the nest mm-hmm. and maybe it's just because i was feeling under the weather and i eaten four cupcakes but i was sitting there and just thinking like i i I'm warming up to this whole don't say good, good. I'm warming up to that. But the whole idea of like you don't have a home here anymore seems pretty fucked up to me. Well, let me ask you this. Yeah. Did you get pushed out of the nest? No. Obviously. You, Obviously. The nest was the nest was available to you. I will always have a home there. Yeah. My my, my mom my mom would keep my room in situ if she could, I think. I, I didn't I with, still with the no girls allowed sign on the door. <laughs> Merlin's dungeon, dungeon, keep out dungeon, with master, dungeon masters only. I did not get pushed out of the nest either and I think a lot of the decisions I made in my early 20s were all attempts to push myself out of the nest and you can't it's very hard it was very hard for me to successfully push myself out of the nest because I would I would I would leave home I would go I would sleep under bridges I would say I don't need money man I don't need money and I would get covered with lice and people would hit me and I would get I would have a perpetually runny nose and I looked uh I looked like I lived in a bilge <laughs> And then at a certain point when I would, when, you know, when there would be, when there would actually be like little families of sea monkeys living under my fingernails, I would say, this sucks. And I would go find a payphone and I would dial collect to Alaska and the operator would say, we accept a collect call from John and my mom or dad would say, yes, oh my God. And I would go, hi. And they'd go, where are you? Where have you been? And I would say, oh, I'm in St. Louis, Missouri. And they would go, what the, what is wrong with you? Why haven't you called? And I would say, I'm, I'm lonely. And they would go, oh my God. Well, why don't you come home? And I would say, okay. My God, your, 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 your mom in particular it's she's such a fascinating person and there's she's not 
I don't know. Now, what's the word I'm looking for? She's, she just always surprises me. It's amazing what she will and won't put up with, and then what she won't and will put up with. It, it's, she, I can't believe she, she suffered you for so long, so gladly, and so graciously. Well, and there was a part of me, I think, in the Anne back was of tough. my head. Anne was tough. Anne would make oh, you sit down tough. and do she your homework. Tough. It's she was tough as hell. But, Jesus. But, but, but that, and I think that is a generational, that, that is a generational shift that was happening. Because I think at, at, uh, because when she was that age, she said, you know what? I'm never going back to Ohio. And she left Ohio and she never went back. And when I left Alaska and said, you know what? I'm never going back to Alaska. In fact, I did go back to Alaska. Mm-hmm. And I went back and, and then I left again and said, I'm never coming back here. And I did go back. And I went back multiple times. And, I, and part of me kept waiting for them to say, for the, for them to slam the the door on me for for him to say you do not have a home here anymore and it never happened and i was not success, i was not able to do it myself i was not able to slam that door in my own face uh for whatever reason and i don't know whether it is that we are that we were the first generation of of fruits <laughs> i don't know whether i don't know see uh, you see what happens it was the revolutions of 1848 that that set in motion a chain of events where the the kaiser uh was deposed and then eventually i became a a fruit i don't know whether it was four or four i don't know what it is that happened to us that we were not pushed out of our homes and we also never really severed those apron strings ourselves um and and again this may be another example of me being too hard on myself and when i'm 75 and sitting uh you know with my child i'm going to say you know what i should have been a lot easier on myself because i was doing the best i could you never realized how low your standard should be you never realized how <laughs> you know what? how low your potential <laughs> truly was that whole time what if I you was, were actually I, doing better than you should be doing right now the whole time that I was eating meatball sandwiches in the bathtub and tweeting about it and feeling like that was a career, that actually was a career. That was as good as I could do. That was it. You become peaking. your own Harry Chapin song. I was peaking, and I should have—I should have known it. and I should have been happy with that. Oh God, this is gonna dog me. This is that's, this that the whole idea of that is so gonna dog me down the line. I, we don't have time probably this week, but can we uh, diary this? I would love for you to tell the story about your mom and the, and, and her dental work at some point. Uh, you told me that when I was in Seattle, I'd never heard that story. And like all things, again, I don't want you to get too personal, but I mean, it's a story. Maybe next time we're sharing because I think you really re- rethink. Somebody, somebody who's been through what your mom has been through has the stones to go. You know what? I'm not going back to Ohio, and that's just how it's going to be. Well, but but here's the here's the funny thing. You think about you think about all the Holocaust survivors who right now are there. There, there are very few of them left. You know, mm-hmm. like they're they're dying at a rate of of fifty uh, percent of a day or mm-hmm. whatever. Um, but you think about those people and what they endured, and the fact that they then rejoined human life and lived in towns and went to the grocery store and watched their shows on TV. And the gap, you want to think that, that, that what they endured made them into a different kind of human being, like an unprecedented kind of human. 
that their that their ability to endure that the suffering that they had endured the the trauma that they experienced like they're like superhuman they're 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 the metal for their blade has been folded many more times than other people they've been forged into something right that on another are, level that they are other utterly other but in fact the difference between those uh, uh, the difference between an 85 year old holocaust survivor and me is actually not that the, the gulf isn't that wide. The, the, the gulf of human experience, although people like uh, uh, the things that my mom experienced in her childhood and the pain that she was capable of enduring, uh, seems uh, inconceivable to, to, to me who has never, who's never actually uh, walked five miles on a broken foot or had uh, like 15 root canals with no anesthesia. <sighs> That has net. Uh, that is inconceivable to me. And to to imagine she endured those things, she must be. Uh, she must be uh, utterly different. But in fact, she is. She is a human being. She is. She has the same capacities that I do, and the same. She is a certainly, certainly a Holocaust survivor has a lot of other things going on. But this is the crazy thing about about humanity that what is the same about us across cultures across the the difference between rich and poor the difference the differences between us are so minuscule we are we are ultimately very 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 alike and very very alike in, in capability and in in um and and ultimately like in experience you know, and this is the this is the thing about relative suffering, right? I mean, the the uh, somebody like you or somebody like me who has had X amount of suffering in our life, and, and, and this is why I, ha- I object so much to the idea of white people problems or first world problems. That phrase uh, drives me crazy because the relative experience of suffering. Is it, it? It actually is relative that this this person who has, who worked their entire lives in a mercury mine, and this person who was born with a silver spoon in their mouth, to say that the one who was born with a silver spoon in his mouth doesn't know suffering mm-hmm. is incredibly condescending. And in fact, the person who worked in a mercury mine his whole life and died at thirty, he danced and sang and enjoyed his his food. So, so the idea that suffering is on some kind of uh, on some kind of measurable scale, and the person who has suffered the most has a, a nobility that the person who has suffered the least has no access to, is to misjudge what it is to be human. Hmm. thinking about it <laughs> because um i don't know i'm trying to decide if this makes uh, all the sense or none of the sense but it is uh it, it is actually peculiarly a uh to, to use that phrase you don't like it is kind of a white guy thing to um to to i don't know i don't know it's 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 it it's funny to me how many of the people who are out there worrying about these things are indeed white people like you and me We're, we've just done a podcast about it well this is the this is, I, I when i was walking across europe I remember sitting in a in this uh, this apartment in Romania. It's always in Romania. Mm-hmm. 
my stories. But this was the this was a place where um, where the the there was a sh- the girl had a shower, and the shower pointed at the toilet, and the light that she had in her apartment came in through a bare wire that went like over the shower, through the door, and to a light bulb hanging, you know, over her like pallet of a bed, and the 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 the, the cement walls of her like one room apartment were sweating moisture. And I'm sitting on the floor because I, because she's let me come there and sleep that night. And uh, she's sitting on the bed and we're talking and we don't have a common language. She doesn't speak English and I don't speak Romanian, but we're, we're talking in that way that you'd, you learn to talk with people that you don't have a language with. And oh, after a while, she, she looks at me and she says, you know, I would love... Uh, the the only way that you can do what you're doing, the only way that you can have the thoughts that you're having and walk across Europe in this way and think about the world in this way is because you're rich. There's no other... This is a luxury and it is... You are doing a thing that only a rich person can do. And I said, but you and I are here and I am... You know, I'm, I'm using your hospitality tonight. If if it weren't for you, I would be sleeping outside on the ground, and I'm sleeping here. And your apartment is, is is you you have the luxuries in this in our relationship. And she said, "Yeah, you are rich enough to deny yourself luxury." <laughs> um, and I chewed on it. But the people who wrote the Declaration of Independence were rich enough to deny themselves the luxury of becoming tyrants. And we can't, we can't look at them and say, oh, they had white people problems. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Like, the... The, the story of human beings is it, the, the, the difference between a rich person and a poor person seems so incredible to us because we are here. We're, we're in it. I think if you were flying overhead in a, in a UFO and looking down at somebody who was sleeping in a mud hole and Donald Trump, you might not see there being that big of a gulf between the two lives. Because we're all living in a mud hole here. <laughs> Donald Trump's solid gold bed is not that much different from a mud hole from if you get if you get high enough up in the sky. You know, um, we all have to we all have to poop. And <laughs> but it's also the um... oh let me let me ask you this: If Donald yeah. Trump, if every time Donald Trump poops. It feels like he's pooping razor blades, mm-hmm. which I hope is the case. He might not drink enough water. I really hope that's true. That every time Donald Trump poops, it feels like he's pooping razor blades. Wow, that's tough. And then, in contrast, you think of someone who lives in a shack that they made uh, out of grass that they cut themselves, and uh, they and they sleep on a dirt floor. But every time they poop, it feels so amazing. 
every single one of their poops is amazing. <laughs> Which one of those two people would you rather be? Mm. Can I have a third option? No, those are your two options. <laughs> the guy who lives in a grass hut and every poop is amazing. Yeah. Oh my God. Oh. You're, yeah. you're getting, I don't have an answer to that, but you're getting to the basic contradiction though, which is that, you know, in order to make anything a good story, we have to pull out one thing to contrast. If you pull out 14 things to contrast, it's not a good story anymore. And so the stories that we tell ourselves about these things are about try, asking whether somebody is rich or whether they're poor, whether they're good or whether they are bad. And, and the stories about that, that have any more texture to it than that tend to make people lose their attention for it because it's not, it doesn't, you know, you want to either know that Zoe Deschanel was really great to her fans or that she was a big dick. And depending on like what your point of view is on that, you're going to tell that story in a certain way. You're going to hear it in a certain way, but it's just really, it's just a bunch of people standing around doing stuff. And you know, and I, the mud, the mud, the mud hole thing is interesting to me. Uh, this is really overly subtle, but I, it's, it's not, it's, um, and maybe it's not so far off sticking leaves down some girl's shirt, I guess. But it's it's one thing to think that people are different, and it's another thing to have strong opinions about what that difference means to make them different. Because that's when you get stupid. That is pretty subtle. Well, I mean, the thing is, um, there's certainly – first of all, there's certainly more to the lives of all the people than, than how they feel when they poop, although that's a big one for me. But, I know but, it but, is. But also – but isn't this part of the liberal problem in some ways is to look at someone and go, oh, you are a person with dark skin and therefore I must defend you. Well, no, I, I could be your boss. Thanks, but no thanks. Mm-hmm. You know, I, so you know that that person's different, but if your whole paradigm is that essentially that dark people need to be defended by me, then what that difference is – and I'm not trying to be out there or die here – but the thing, the, the, person that, the thing that made that person different is apparent to you. They're black and you're white. And so you've decided – you've taken it upon yourself that you're going to be their protector. Consequently, using what you see as the difference to not allow them to be different in the way that they want to be different, right? Mm-hmm. It's, so what I'm trying to say is it's one thing to say, well, you know – uh, girls are softer than guys, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, uh, guys are taller than girls. There are certain things that are biologically accurate. There's a chromosomal difference, right? right? And if you don't acknowledge that, you're not a learned person. But it's when you take that scientific fact and try to make it into something that it's not that you get real stupid. And I think that's what happens a lot. I don't know if it's a white people thing or a German thing or an, uh, or an earth thing. But I think what we do is, is we're constantly looking for distinctions as animals to help us stay alive and to help us thrive and make babies and get a meal. And we're always looking for this versus that. You know what I mean? And so that's, that's to me where it gets complicated i mean i think you're right i think everybody needs to come back and realize they're living in a mud hole every once in a while but you know i think it also takes we are evolved enough that i think having a certain amount of empathy about the the about how everybody feels different when they poo is is a good thing you know what i mean it's i, I don't know if we i just i i i the thing that drives me, I hate to beat up on liberals all the time, but at least, but at least the conservatives have ground cover and that their monkey ball's crazy a lot of the time. The problem is that a lot of, a lot of my friends, like, who are really, really smart, think they've got a lot of stuff, you know, nailed down pretty hard. And, you know, I don't think they've asked around. You know, yeah. a lot of the people who are being looked out for, and, you know, you don't really need to look too far to see real world examples of this. Um, you know, it wasn't too long ago when I was a kid that you would look at somebody and you would say, uh, that person's a, well, before I was born, you'd say that person's a cripple. That person's a gimp. That person is a fucking cripple. They are crippled. And then we started saying, well, no, that person is not crippled. That person is handicapped. And you say, well, no, that person's not handicapped. That person is disabled. 
that person is, and so on and so on and so forth. And you can make, yeah, right. So you can take it to the point where it gets sillier and sillier in terms of the jokes. But what it really is, it's a, it's a person. We've all got fucked up stuff about it. It's, it's just that this person has a wheelchair. Oh my gosh, they have a wheelchair. That's so sad. No, it's not sad. The fucking wheelchair helps them get around and they're doing great. You know, it's just, there's something really inside of all of this, like, Looking out for like, and I'm always, I'm always cracking wise about that new joke, that new uh, term, ableist. You're being ableist about things. Yeah. Well, like you know, you know, if you're if you're if you are a person who is an unsighted sighted person, if you're an unhearing person, if you have this, if you're on the spectrum of problems, I, man, you have every right in the world to stand up. I have, I have, uh, I have not a, a super good friend, but I have a pretty good friend who does constantly make me aware of what it's like to be a blind person. And you realize how much something like an iPhone is kind of a dick to use if you're a blind person. Mm. But I guess the thing that bugs me is like, it's, you're not really, not you, but the folks that I'm railing about are not, it's not that they're really even trying to help anybody. They're trying to look good. And they're trying, <laughs> they're, they're out there trying to say something that nobody could disagree with and helps fucking absolutely no one. Well, it's, I, it, 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 I think what, what happened was there, for all of human history, the idea that we were uh, that we were not animals um, was an idea that we clung to because the evidence that we were animals was right over our shoulders all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, if you lived on a farm, you woke up every morning and put on a freshly ironed shirt that was heavily starched and a black suit because if you if you let that go, if you let that slide. And you started dressing like a slob and you wore sweatpants. You, I mean, the difference between you and your pigs who are living right outside your window it was a distinction you had a, you had a real vested interest in maintaining. You know, your pigs are right there. And the similarities between you and your pigs are there for all to see. Mm-hmm. Unless you maintain this, this separation. And... We were, and human civilization was built on some big ideas that came from the top down. Like, God said X, and the law says this, and the king says that. And the, as time has gone on, certainly on the liberal, and then and the conservatives, I think, in most cases, still live that way. But on the liberal side of the equation, we don't allow ourselves to have big ideas that govern us anymore. And most of the people in the world are, they see a bunch of, like, somebody blows a bunch of bubbles, and we're out trying to, you know, trying to pop each bubble. Like, each bubble is its own super important point that we need to make. This is a super important This, this bubble that, cannot be allowed to survive. I need to deal with this bubble, and then I need to deal with that bubble over there. And if you, if you start to try and talk about big ideas, governing ideas, concepts... Those are we, we, we feel like on, uh, on the liberal side of, of the of the aisle, we feel like incorrectly that a lot of those ideas are resolved. We we know what the deal is. You know, we 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 uh, we are the educated side of this equation, and we know we know what the deal is. And we have rejected God, and we have rejected Nietzsche, and we have rejected uh, we have rejected the uh, the idea of. Uh, oligarchy we have a, we have rejected the idea we've rejected that, everything except seeing it how it really is 
right. don't you think? I think there's a certain <laughs> sense of like, well, oh gosh, even as recently as four or five years ago, there were people whose vision was heavily occluded, and yeah. aren't we lucky to be able to see as clearly we see. as we now see? Now we finally see. Why can't everybody and, have this gift? And in and, and just in the course of our adult lives, we have culturally, uh, the first thing we did was reject all the great books because they were written by the wrong people. And they encoded privilege. And so we rejected all of the world's wisdom. And we rejected all, uh, and we've certainly rejected the idea that there are some families that are, uh, there, there are some people who are, uh, who are better, you know, the people that, the Kennedys or whatever. They're not better. They're just, they have just, uh, they, had an, they had unequal opportunity. And so we've rejected that anyone is a natural leader that we rejected that any we rejected basically any idea that each of us is not a kingdom in and of ourselves and that each of us is not entitled to rule our own kingdom with an iron fist and have everyone around us respect the you know respect the the autonomy of our principality and not just respect but like like have uh have reciprocal like trade agreements with with people <laughs> with, with with our own little principality that is being governed we each, we each have and acknowledge one another's monarchies basically like our yeah, one right. person and, one person monarchy and if you say well interesting but uh you know plato covered all of this uh, uh, uh like three thousand years ago people are like plato huh white male had enough of and your double talk and you're just like bah. okay so i guess basically like i'm trying I, i'm living this person over here is living according to the christian bible and this person over here is living according to the tenants of my little pony but the two things are equal but, and and the two things are and and the idea that you would suggest that the two that the two worldviews are not commensurate is uh is discriminatory and there's nothing worse than that and it's unsustainable it is it's it's it, it's unsustainable well it's just certainly hard to see a way that that a lot of stuff gets better as long as that's the only really culturally acceptable thing to do or to be yeah which is why we mm -hmm. are starting a new reality we're hmm. starting a new muscular liberalism that that stems from a worldview an overarching worldview does it have to be muscular what about people who are not muscularly abled there there are people who will be muscular on their behalf boo i'm sorry that's how it's gonna go <laughs> it's how it's gotta work we welcome all people as long as mm -hmm. as long they, as they're not fruits <laughs> as long as they can take a punch in the nose <laughs> And that's not to say that that uh, that you you necessarily are going to get a punch in the it's nose. It's not that you're gonna. It's not that you're gonna like it. You know, you may you may get a broken nose. It's certainly going to hurt, but you'll yeah. probably make it through. The the thing is that one might be coming your way, mm. and so if, if you're if you're ready if you're ready if you're if you are able to take a punch in the nose if you think you're able to take a punch in the nose to have the world run a little bit better, <laughs> then you're on board. Keep a small bag packed. <laughs> you know, um, Thomas Dolby did not get a writing credit on anything on that record. There's so many keyboards on that record. Do, 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 do. So what? Are you telling me, like, what? The, what's his name? The first time. What's his name? Graham? 
Mick, uh, Lou Graham. Lou Graham. And Mick Jones was the one. Is he the guy in The Clash? Uh, there are two Mick Joneses. One That's in The right. Clash and one... Um, See, Hitler, Hitler would have taken care of that. That's, that's unacceptable. Lou Graham. Well, all the credits on here, it's Graham and Jones, Jones and Graham, Graham and Jones. There's not a single person besides those two guys that have a writing credit on that album. Well, the thing about it, Jones wrote all the tunes, and then they found Graham. This is the, you know, the, the origin story of Foreigner. Hmm. They found Graham. He was not, it's not like they grew up together. Um, oh, was it like, like a headhunting? Like they went out and they, they needed a singer. Yeah, because Lou Graham had Lou Graham was the guitar player in uh, in a band before Foreigner that was one of those like you guys are going to be huge, but but not yet. Like, and he was he was writing tunes for other I'm other bands and stuff. For and, this, he's American. Oh, you know what? He was in Spooky Tooth. Spooky Tooth. Yeah, and Spooky Tooth. Was like Sweetwater in that Cameron Crowe movie. Yeah, they were meant for they were meant to be big, but they weren't. And then anyway, he writes he writes all these tunes, and um, and then they find they find Lou Graham somehow, and um, and then he writes he writes some of it. He's a Christian rock guy now. Who? Lou Graham? Lou Graham? No. Lou Graham? Graham? Oh no, really? Lou Graham is a Christian rocker. He's worked with Petra, and I don't mean Hayden. You're as cold as ice. I'll never forget when that record we came out. Sacrifice our love. Album originally titled Silent Partners, Foreigner 4. Uh, you know, Hy- Hypnosis, Hypnosis, who did all those great covers, all those Pink Floyd covers, all those Peter, oh, yeah. Peter Gabriel. Yeah. Uh, they asked to design a cover based on the original title of uh, Silent Partners, developed a black and white image of a young man in bed with a pair of binoculars looming overhead. Resulting design was rejected by the band as they felt it was, quote unquote, too homosexual. Oh. So, is the rest of the band English? 1981. It was a different yes. time. Yeah, they were English. Huh. Thomas Dolby wrote the keyboard parts. He didn't That's get a, a didn't get a single goddamn credit. Do you know what kind of dough he would have today? What did this sell? How many records does this sell? I, you know, he. I think six million. I know, I know, right? Six X platinum. Right, right. Man, have you gotten close to a platinum yet? If you put them all together, end to end. No, no. Uh, 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 in fact, a hundred thousand records is a massive achievement now for any band. The only band, the only indie rock bands that have sold a hundred thousand records are, I mean, Death Cab has had a platinum record. Uh, the Decemberists have sold more than a hundred thousand records. Boney Vare has. Um. Those Mumford and Sons guys seem to be doing pretty oh, well. Jesus, they've sold fucking three million records in America, let alone <sighs> in Europe. They're massive. But for bands that are peers that are my peers, you know, not a surf never sold hundred thousand records. I mean, all together, all, all the bands that are living up to their potential. All of us who are living, who, all of us who actually have arrived at the top of their capability and are just fucking there. And just putting out records that sell 20,000 copies, and that's it. That's as good as they were ever meant to be. That's it, buddy. 20,000 records. You should be proud. <laughs> Not just proud. You should, you should, you know, you should, you should wake up every morning and you should pick up your kid and kiss her on the forehead and say, your daddy has done the best that he could. <laughs> <laughs> You're a real special guy, John. <laughs> 